good to be with you today. I appreciate Mike and my fellow teachers being flexible with me. I think I was originally slated to be with you last week, and um, I was uh, ended up speaking at a retreat, uh, which was not for Otter Creek, but it was held at High Lake, where we have summer camp, uh, for any of you who have ever done summer camp with the OCYG. And so I was there on Sunday morning, and it was a very odd feeling because uh, as many times as I've been to High Lake, I've rarely been there when it's quiet and a cool climate. And I have to say, it was nice, you know? As much as I love being at the, in the sort of the loud and rowdy summer camp with, with our kids, uh, it, was, it was nice. But I'm glad to be back here with you this week. Um, as I mentioned, uh, uh, the, the other teachers filling in, Chris Gonzalez, I believe, was with you last week. And he talked about relational dances, and uh, I, I actually get to work with Chris. Chris and I are faculty members together in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Lipscomb. And uh, there, are, there are three core faculty members. We're all very different people, and the students like to joke that uh, if one of the faculty has a, a point that they want to make for you in class, Dr. Briggs will show you a table. Dr. Morgan, a video clip, and Dr. Gonzalez will write you a poem. And so I don't know if, if he had a poem uh, when he was with you last week, but I have a video clip this week, true, true to uh, form. So uh, one of the times we were together, uh, we were talking about communication, and, and we spent a little time watching part of an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond with Ray and Deb. We're not going to watch as much of an episode today, but I thought just for consistency's sake, it would be nice to, to keep that same couple kind of as our illustration. And so we're going to watch two clips today. The first is particularly brief, uh, it's, uh, and then the, the next one is, is, is brief, but, but um, a little bit longer than this one. Uh, I want you to think about as you watch this question uh, on the board behind us. How does this scene reflect the conventional wisdom regarding sex in marriage? In other words, th there are assumptions that exist out around us, right? That, well, uh, th you know, this is, this is what happens to sex in marriage. And uh, it, I don't want to tell you what those assumptions are. I'm interested to hear from you. But I think that this particular uh, scene uh, reflects... A lot of, of at least what I think I hear uh, out there, so. I'm exhausted. Uh, I'll sleep right here. All right, okay. I get it. <laughs> you don't got to do the whole, I'm tired, show. bothering you this evening. Wait a minute, you think this is an act so I won't have to have sex with you? Not much of an act. <laughs> you could jazz it up with a song or two. And, and, by the way, I wasn't going to do anything later anyway, okay? So, you don't got to insult me with your preemptive strength. <laughs> Admit it. You came in here to tell me you were tired, so, so I will leave you alone later. I did not. Why can't you admit it? 
Look, you're tired, right? You had a long day. So what's the last thing you would want to do later? Well, you might be right about that. <laughs> See? I know. I know when people don't want to have sex with me. <laughs> I'm talking to an expert. Okay, so let me ask you this. How come you're only picking up that I'm tired means no sex tonight? How come I'm tired doesn't also mean, gee, I could really use some help in the kitchen with all those dishes? What am I, mind reader? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll come back in and check on them uh, a, a little bit later. But uh, let, starting with this question, okay? What, what, what do you hear out there? What, uh, what, what are the assumptions about the relationship between marriage and sex, especially over time? For the podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting people out. I'm waiting people out. I'm telling them on the podcast. I, I, I'm a trained professional. I can wait a long time. Okay, what is it? I was going to say the longer the time, the less the sex. The longer the time, the less the sex. Okay, right. Anything else? Uh, male is more interested than female. Okay, so there are these assumptions that get attached to gender. May or may not be accurate. Good, good. Anything else? that you hear out there or that you saw in this clip? It's not prioritized. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Which is an interesting idea, right? Because uh, part of, of the conventional wisdom, I believe, is that uh, it, it should just happen, it should be just natural. We don't have to prioritize things that, that happen naturally. Uh, and yet, uh, that may actually not be true, even though many of us may believe that, right? Uh, there, there's a, uh, I do think there's sort of this narrative out there, at least in, in my experience in, in working with couples over the years, there is this, this narrative that, that sort of says, well, it's going to be the best it can be early in the relationship. And then it's, you know, it's, it's going to decline both in quantity, but also in quality. Now, what's interesting is research good, valid, empirical research does not seem to agree with that assessment of what the relationship can be between marriage and sex. Before we get to that, uh, I, I, I want to share this. Years ago, 2020 ran this special. It was myths about sex or something like that. And one of the myths was marriage is bad for sex. And unfortunately, you can no longer find that uh, clip online anymore, but I, I did find the transcript uh, because there was something I remembered from that episode that made an impression on me, uh, and, and I've continued to remember. They were interviewing married couples, and they chose this particular couple, Mark and Donna Nacero. Now, the interesting thing about them is that they are both ballroom dancers, married to one another, and they have been partners, both dance partners as well as marriage partners, for many, many, many years. Well, uh, they, they run a studio up in Massachusetts, and in the interview, uh, the, the said that after 15 years of marriage, they say their sex life has never been hotter. They say a great marriage and great sex 
is very much like a dance. Now, I don't know a lot about ballroom dancing, although I know a lot more since Dancing with the Stars started coming on, right? Any of you watch that and then all of a sudden you think you're experts on the, on the Paso Doble or something because you watch <laughs> It's like when ice skating comes around every four years, you know? And, and you're like, I don't actually got all the way around on that triple south out, you know? But, well, I, I don't know a lot about dancing other than what I've seen on, on TV. But this is what Mark and Donna Nacera said about it. Again, professional ballroom dancers and teachers of ballroom dance. And they say somebody who's just starting out dancing doesn't know anything about the experience that you have 20 years later when you really move. I think sex is very much like that. And then this was the key takeaway for me. It takes a lot of rehearsal to make dancing look that easy. I suspect that if we had Mark and Donna here and we were able to interview them and we asked them, you know, were you in better physical shape 20 years ago than you are today, they may say yes. They may have been able to, uh, they may have been able to move in ways 20 years ago as dancers that perhaps they, they are limited today, and yet I suspect they would also say that they dance better together today than they did 15, 20 years ago because it takes a lot of rehearsal to make dancing look that easy. Now, a major study of sex that was done out of the University of Chicago a few years ago, large sample um, 3,500 men and women between the ages of 18 to 59. Some were married, some were not. Uh, really just robust findings from this study. Uh, no, no sort of um, uh, particular faith-based agenda here or anything like that. But two findings that were particularly significant about the relationship between marriage and sex. The first was about quantity, and perhaps it's not surprising that uh, more married men reporting, reported having sex at least twice a week than single men, and more married women reported having sex at least twice a week compared to single women. You'll notice in both cases, men over-reported versus women, but the principle is that the married folks are having more sex than the single folks. That's not necessarily a huge shock. Any thoughts on why that is? Availability would seem like this. Exactly. That's right. It's access. Yeah. It's availability. I mean, it's, I, I don't think that's much of a hidden variable here, right? And so you could dismiss this and you could say, yeah, but this doesn't mean that marriage is necessarily good for sex because it's, it's just accessibility. It's just availability. Well, the study also got to quality. And it said that married folks consistently report being more satisfied with sex than sexually active singles. Now, if I had just put on the slide, emotionally satisfied, you might be tempted to go, oh, yeah, right, I mean, emotionally, right? Like that, like that poem thing, right? right? But not just emotionally they're more physically satisfied with sex. And I think that what Mark Nassero said helps us to explain that somewhat. It takes a lot of rehearsal to make dancing look that easy. There's a comfort 
there's, there's a, a knowledge of one another that can only come over time in the context of a committed, intimate relationship. Speaking of, we've talked a lot in this class about John Gottman and his findings. And he's done tremendous work. I want to mention another researcher who has also contributed significantly to the field, and that's Robert Sternberg. Now, Sternberg is best known for this sort of triangle or triarchic theory of what makes consummate love. Okay? In other words, when I say I love someone, in, in the English language, we have very limited uh, options at our disposal. Right? I could say in the same day that I love my wife and that I love trucks and that I love hamburgers. And all three of those statements could be true, but I'm using this, this one word. And so there's, it needs sometimes to be sort of unpacked a little bit more. What do we mean when we say love? So Sternberg did this really significant research study where he looked at, uh, he did a, a qualitative uh, set of interviews with a large sample of couples who were... Um, together long-term, and they were reasonably happy together. Long-term, intact, happy couples. What do they have in common? He found three things. Passion is one of those important things. That there's an attraction to one another. But he also found intimacy, which here, he's not using as a euphemism for sex. That would fall more cleanly in the passion category but intimacy in the sense of friendship, sharing. And then commitment was that third piece, that conscious choice, that conscious decision. When I say yes to this person, I'm in effect saying no to all these other people. I'm committing, I'm consciously choosing this relationship. And you can have, as you can see, and it, we could take a whole... Uh, class just unpacking this and, and we don't need to do that but you can see there's all kinds of different combinations you can have one of these but not the other two you could have any two of them but not all three or you can have all three and all three is what he calls consummate love passion yes commitment yes intimacy yes and I want you to sort of take that and just put it in your pocket because we're going to pull it back out here in a minute So, my dad is a civil engineer, and uh, growing up in church, I heard him preach on a few occasions, like if the preacher was out of town or something. My dad served as an elder for many, many years, and, and sometimes he'd be called upon to fill in in the pulpit, or we were traveling to my grandparents' church or something, they might ask him to speak. Uh, but as many times as I've heard him preach, I've only heard two sermons. He's a civil engineer. He's got two. Noah's Ark and the Tabernacle. <laughs> Why? Both those things have lots of measures, right? So he can talk about Noah's Ark, and he can talk about construction materials, and he can talk about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the cubits, right? All the measures. He could talk about the containers within, right? And I've heard him preach several times on the tabernacle. Same deal, right? 
you've got construction material, you've got, uh, you've got these, uh, these measures between the holy of holies and the, and the holy place and the outer court, and you've got cubits, and you, you, you know, um, so specific. That's what, that's what I remember about those lessons, was just how specific God was when it came to building things, right? But that, that's what's above the line. The measures, the cubits, the feet, the, the materials, that's above the line. What's below the line, why that matters in the case of the tabernacle is this. God says it to Moses. It's in the tabernacle that I will meet with you. It's in the tabernacle that we will come together. And so the tabernacle matters. It matters. Now today, when we come to the, the place upstairs that we call the sanctuary, we don't really come to the sanctuary. It's a place that we all meet. But we bring our sanctuaries with us. It's, it's here within us that God meets with us. That He communes with us. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. This is a passage that's familiar uh, to many of us. Uh, what you've got to know about Corinth to understand why Paul's talking about prostitutes is that Corinth as a society... Uh, was uh, what we would describe as a, a pagan society. And they had very different views of religion than did these Christians who were trying to make it uh, in Corinth. And the Temple of Aphrodite was there in Corinth. They employed a thousand prostitutes there for, for religious ceremony. So this is what's happening around these, these new Christians in Corinth. And Paul is writing to them and, and teaching them and encouraging them. And so he talks about uniting yourself with a prostitute and why that's an issue. He says it's because two become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It matters. Here he meets with me, right? Eugene Peterson says it a little different way. Sometimes it's helpful to hear these passages that are known to us in a, in a, in a little bit different voice. And I really like how Peterson renders this passage. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master... We must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. Did you catch that? We must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. Sternberg, as great as his research is, is simply rediscovering and emphasizing something that's already in Scripture 2,000 years before. There is this relationship between sexuality and intimate connection and commitment. Right? Again, passion, intimacy, commitment. 
And I think one of the reasons that sometimes we may, those of us who are people of faith, may feel a disconnect in, in, in terms of how we might want to think about sex versus how the world around us thinks about sex, probably a disconnect not unlike the, those in Corinth, though, is because a lot of what's out there around us is really just about passion. It's about one-third of, of that equation. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, how many of you are familiar with the names Masters and Johnson. This is a cover of Time Magazine from 1970 uh, at a time when Masters and Johnson were all the rage because they were some of the first people who were talking about sexuality from a scientific perspective. And they were uh, measuring what was happening to the body in sex. And they published their results and they talked about what has become pretty well known as the sexual response cycle. This is what happens to people when they're in the midst of a sexual experience. That's useful information. That, that they contributed significantly to our body of knowledge about this. But it's limited. It's describing what happens to the body And thinking of that as fully describing the sexual experience is like describing the physical or the physiological parts of having tears and thinking you're talking about sadness. We, we, can, we can do that, right? We, we can study what happens to a person when he or she cries. We can measure the, the moisture that, that comes from the body, right? We could measure heart rate. We could measure breath rate. We could describe crying uh, in robust terms, but that are limited to just the physical experience. But that's not sadness. It's just a physical expression of it, right? And so we need something that goes beyond just this kind of clinical understanding of sexuality. That's why I love this uh, from a guy named Chris McCluskey. Now, McCluskey is a Christian, and as such, probably grew up in church, and that means that he is prone to the same thing that many of us are who grew up in church. Uh, he likes alliteration. So his categories are atmosphere, arousal, Apex and afterglow. I just want to briefly talk about what each of these are, and uh, and then we'll we'll understand why this is a helpful way of thinking about sex in the context of intimacy and commitment. So atmosphere, this is where most of your life as a couple is lived. Years ago, Kevin Lehman wrote a book called Sex Begins in the Kitchen, and it wasn't a book about having sex in the kitchen. It was a book about how you start a, a pattern of interaction in the morning and that carries you throughout the day, right? And that there's a, a congruence or a lack of congruence between what's happening in your relationship and the kind of sex life that you might want to have. And so when you think about things that, that go in the atmosphere category, um, Really, anything that has to do with how we treat one another, but not just how we treat one another, also our surroundings. Quite literally, 
our atmosphere. What is our life together like? And is it conducive to being attracted to one another or not? A pretty well-known couple. This is an actual photo of, um, of Adam and Eve. They, it's interesting how the, they always strategically stood behind like tree limbs and stuff when they got their photos made because uh, we actually know from Scripture that there's not a lot we know about Adam and Eve, but Scripture says that they were naked and unashamed. That's one thing we actually know about them. So I have a question for you, and I don't, I don't know that this ever came up in Sunday school uh, when you were learning about Adam and Eve as younger folks, but if you were thinking about a couple who's living in paradise, you know they're living in paradise, and you know that they are accurately described as being naked and unashamed, what else might we be able to infer about what their relationship was like. What qualities of relationship do you think that, that we could reasonably assume that Adam and Eve enjoyed? <clears throat> I'm just going to set that there and see what comes to mind for you. I would say there was a, uh, a mutuality okay. about their experience that yes. was perfect. Uh, so they both equally desired each other. Yes. Both equally uh, interested in bringing joy to the others. Yeah. So a lot of mutuality. Mutuality, and I heard you also talk about joy. Yeah. It was a mutual relationship. It was, uh, we could assume joy, enjoyment, perhaps. What else can we assume about their relationship? Imagine that you live in paradise and you're naked and unashamed. What, what else? And frankly, that's hard to imagine. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. There's a reason that that's now hard to imagine. But what else? Yeah. You know, uh, I may go the other way with it. Is they're in this environment with other animals, presumably, I mean, according to the real life picture here. Yeah, uh, right. Bird, squirrel. Yeah. And there are very few mammals out there that mate for pleasure. Humans are one. Yes. I believe yeah. dolphins are the other. Yeah. And yeah. so we're given that, but I don't know at what point we were given that. So they could have, mm. you know, okay. switched over. I don't think there were dolphins in the garden. Right. So they may have viewed sex as. Well, this is out of necessity when these animals do it too. Okay. And they were not good at following instructions either. And they were told to procreate. <laughs> but both of these actually, I think, point to something that we could reasonably assume. And that is that there's a sense of permission on their lives and on their relationship and on their sexual relationship in particular. Yeah, if you ever, they don't have to argue with whether I really should be in this relationship, should I be doing this, you know, even if there was some sort of a task attached to this, there, there was, a, there was a, an instruction, right? And there was a permission from a creator. What else might you assume? 
probably had total trust in each other. Yeah. They, they probably didn't know what it meant to not trust, but because right. I felt like that probably came with the sin. But if the, there's no shame, that says to me that there's there's trust in this context. Yeah. Any other thoughts? There's no one particular answer. I'm pretty high level of contentment. Yeah. I mean, they're in paradise, right? They're content until they're not, yeah, right? For a period of time. Yeah, yeah. Which, let's talk about. So they're not, then. There is this temptation. In the narrative, you know, it's what's often referred to as the fall. And one of the first things you see in Scripture, after the temptation, after the fall... Something is immediately changed. What do they immediately go and do? Well, they're ashamed. They're ashamed. They go and they cover themselves, right? So we now have shame where we previously did not have that. And so often today in relationship, when there are challenges or problems when it comes to sexuality, They may exist in some of these things that you've identified. That there's a lack of mutuality, or that there's an existence of shame, or there's a lack of trust or joy, or there's not a sense of of permission. All of those are atmospheric conditions. Now, there are other more practical atmospheric conditions, like disobedient children exist in our atmosphere, right? Uh, the just the all the stuff that's required to maintain a home together, right? Bills, debt. I mean, that's all part of atmosphere too. So much is in this atmosphere category, and some of it we have more direct control over than than others. But I want you to give thought to atmosphere and sort of what's the atmosphere of my relationship and how could it be, how could it be improved? Uh, how can I make my atmosphere more uh, congruent with the kind of sex life that I want to have with my spouse? And that brings us back here to Ray and Deborah. All right, so we fast-forwarded into the episode and... Uh, chosen about uh, five or six minutes here. Here's what you need to know. Following that little conversation at the beginning, uh, Ray decided to go out and buy a board game that he thought would help him and Deborah in this area of their life together, right? And so they have, we've also fast-forwarded through some really clumsy attempts to play the game, uh, some, some humorous things, but also some hurtful things that happen there. And uh, Deborah is, is, is frustrated. One thing you need to know to understand their back and forth here is that there are two colors of squares on the board. You know, it's like you roll the dice, you move the, the, the little person around. So the pink squares are the romantic squares. The blue squares are what uh, they call the naughty squares. That's, that's what the game calls them, so... Uh, let's see here. Okay. Okay. 
was hot. Can't you look into my eyes? Because they're too beautiful. <laughs> the game's obviously rigged, all right? There's twice as many pink romantic squares as naughty blue ones. Why did you buy the game, Ray, huh? That's what I really don't understand. Why did you buy it if you didn't want to play? I thought it would be fun. It's got something for both of us. Sex for me, reading for you. <laughs> you really have no idea what this game is for, do you? Yes, I have an idea. The game is to get you in the mood. Remember the mood? No, this game is not about my mood. This game is supposed to improve our sex life. Yeah, well then I got the wrong game. I should have got the game that gets you to have a sex life. <laughs> oh yes, you're the poor sex-starved husband. Yeah, and you're the poor put-upon wife who doesn't get any romance. No, I'm not talking about romance, though. I wanted to play this game for other things, too. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I don't hold your hand enough. Watch your sleep, listen to your heartbeat. Mum, mum, mum. Well, and let me tell you something. What you, what you call romance, it's always changing. Sometimes it's that you want flowers, and then other times, other times, how about the time you got excited because I brought home a bucket of chicken? Why? What is romance? Tell me what it is, I'll do it every time. Listen, Ray, I am not talking about you and the romance. I'm talking about you and the blue squares. What? The blue squares? The blue ones are the sex ones. What? What are you saying? What? Thing. <laughs> 
accent? You got it, governor. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stop us right there. Uh, we we've got just a, a couple of minutes, uh, but I, do you see how that was embarrassing? That was a hard conversation to have. Um, you take that whatever challenges they're having in the bedroom. You take that outside the context of commitment intimacy. And it's that much harder to have a conversation like that, right? This, this is an atmosphere issue, right? Have, have they built the kind of atmosphere that allows them to have conflict and then resolve it? Have they built the kind of atmosphere that allows them to have hard conversations, maybe about even other topics? And here we see that in, in this conversation that may be especially embarrassing. We just have a couple minutes, so for the sake of time, we, we won't discuss this as a group, but I hope you see the, the way that that illustrates where atmosphere leads into attraction, leads into arousal. Uh, in just a minute, I, I'd like to share this with you. I think it's really helpful, and it has to do with uh, the, the idea of, of arousal. This is from Dr. Pat Love, and yes, her name is Dr. Love, and it's not a made-up name, and she's a legit uh, researcher and clinician. Uh, but Dr. Love, uh, she, takes, uh, she, she has taken uh, what's a pretty robust body of literature about sexuality, and she has given us a couple ways to think about the point at which someone is ready to have sex, and I don't mean for the first time, I mean on an ongoing basis, okay? And she calls these two groups sexy body people, sexy brain people. Sexy body people tend to be testosterone dominant, whereas sexy brain people tend to be estrogen dominant. About two-thirds of men and one-third of women fall into the first category, about two-thirds of women, one-third of men. We saw that early in the first clip, right? This idea that this tends to fall along gender lines. And to some degree it does, but not fully. Sexy bodies immediate heat. Some people call this the microwave, push a button, ready to go, versus the crock pot, slower to heat up. Right? 
And this is what I really wanted you to hear before we were done today. A husband and a wife could be under stress together, right? Guess what happens? Under stress, one type wants sex more, the other wants it less. You see, how could you be thinking about sex at a time like this? Right? That's a significant difference. All of these, all of these are, are significant differences. Ongoing desire, kind of ready to go, versus the closer you get to orgasm, the more your desires heighten, right? These are significant differences. And do we have an atmosphere that allows us to negotiate these differences and to not assume the worst things about our partner? First time I was with you, I said, what we think about our partner is is more important even than what we say out loud, right? And this gets to that. What do I think about my partner? So atmosphere, uh, this took a while, so enjoy this slide. <laughs> atmosphere <laughs> flows into arousal, into sex itself, back into, don't stare directly into it, back into afterglow, and that reinvigorates our atmosphere. I apologize for uh, having to rush through that content but I hope there's something in there that you find helpful. Mike, any last words?